Hello and welcome back to the Bicycle Mechanics Podcast. I am your host, Matt Taini, and today we're going to do podcast number 19. And I'm going to cover a couple topics here. We're going to do some bike shop stuff. I'm going to talk about car racks, which is not very glamorous, but kind of interesting. And then we're going to do a little bit more uh, on the Giro, the early days. Um, we're going to cover the very early days of the Giro and talk a little bit about Alfredo Binda. So let's talk about car racks to start. Car racks are probably the least glamorous category of products that a shop sells. Um, Very utilitarian, very necessary, but you know, in my opinion, kind of boring. So I I remember my early days, uh, my early shop days, um, first shop I ever worked at, the Bicycle Re in Half Moon Bay, California. We had a Thule display, uh, which when I first started working there, I didn't know how to say it. I thought it was Thull or Thully but it's Thule. I was corrected pretty quickly on my first or second day of work. Um, I didn't know much about car racks at the time. Obviously, I had just started working on bikes. Um, back then, most uh, racks, uh, car racks were rain gutter towers because uh, the roof line of vehicles were a little different than they are today, actually a lot different. Um, Yakima's first tower, uh, and still is, uh, as far as I know, is called the 1A rain gutter tower. That kind of says it all, 1A, back in the days. So the the rain gutter towers, Thule made them as well. I forget what theirs were called, but those were the ones that I owned. Uh, were pretty easy to install. Uh, I think it only required one tool, from what I remember. Um, and I had one of the those kind of racks on my Ford F-150 uh, when I moved to Colorado and it had your typical rain gutters, I think it was like a 1982 Ford F-150. Um, like I said, you didn't need any special tools. I think I was able to put that one on with like a 15 millimeter open end wrench. Um, so those racks, I don't know, they're, they were they were pretty darn solid. Um, but racks on top of vehicles with bikes on them kind of stressed me out. Um, back then, maybe not so much, but nowadays they kind of, I don't really like it. Um, the bikes get really dirty. Um, they get, they get bugs on them and stuff from the road. So I do recall one time driving, uh, when I was working for the Saturn cycling team, driving through some Southern States and, the apparently I think they're called June bugs. The June bugs were out in force and, the bikes got so many crushed bugs on them and the windshield was so bad that I'd have to stop often to clean the windshield at a gas station because they were so gross. And once you put on the wiper fluid and, and swish it, then you just get a big smear of dead June bugs. But I just, I'll never forget that the bikes were so gross. Um, (laughs) and the other thing about, about putting bikes on the top of a vehicle is that, uh, driving in the wind with a full rack, um, on top is is really not very much fun um, really cuts down on your mileage and it can be a little a little sketchy at times um, I remember when I worked for uh, the team out of Santa Barbara the Chevrolet LA Sheriff's team uh, we had a, uh, a really large passenger van um, Chevy obviously and uh, it had a huge roof line and it had uh, 
the old style rain gutters, so it's pretty easy to install a rack on there. Uh, I think I probably had maybe like six crossbars on there. Um, six crossbars and 12, I don't know, however many towers. Um, and we had a wheel rack. We had a, enough uh, bike holders for 15 bikes and like 25 wheels. Uh, and we had a ladder even installed on the back to get up to the top because it was because it was so high. And with the Chevrolet team, with the uh, with the the large passenger van, the um, when it, the, when the rack was full and we were driving and the wind would hit us from the side, it would kind of move the van to that side. We'd be like a, a ship on the ocean, getting wind from one side, kind of tilting a little bit. It was it was not my not my favorite. I was always worried something was going to come off. Um, and we had uh, we had uh, wheel wheel racks. The last couple rows were wheel racks, and I think we could fit like twenty five wheels or maybe even more on there. Um, and I had an inner tube that I ran through the wheels uh, to keep them on in case the quick release uh, skewers failed or they weren't put on tight enough. Because I often had help in st uh, putting all the stuff on the van and. Uh, some of the folks weren't as good at tightening those um, those quick releases on the front wheel on the wheel rack as I was. Um, I recall one time we were driving uh, doing a, a race in Southern California south of Santa Barbara and we had loaded everything up and we were driving and uh, I had help loading up some of the wheels on the back and we were driving and a wheel fell off the rack and kind of hit the ground and rolled into the off the side of the road and thankfully we all saw it and uh, we pulled over we had two different vans going both vehicles pulled over and of course of all the wheels to fall off were fall off the van it happened to be uh, Scott Moninger's uh, front wheel with a very special zip hub and a zip rim wheel was the wheel that came off and when uh, when the the driver of one of the vehicles went to grab the wheel out of the, the ditch and put it back uh, inside the van. Uh, Scott said, that was my wheel, wasn't it? And uh, of course, of all the wheels that came off, it was his, so. But the wheel was fine, uh, it had a good tire on it, and uh, it only hit the tire, didn't land, and it kind of rolled off the road. So, um, kind of a little PTSD there after, I, in the future when I would load wheels and kind of remembering that was a little stressful, so. Uh, the other thing about it was loading and unloading from the van uh, was kind of a two-person job. Uh, someone would go up on the on the ladder and stand up top, and somebody else would hand the the bikes up, and vice versa. On the when you got to the race to bring them down, you had to hand the bike down to somebody. Um, so that was always kind of interesting. It took a while. Um, and as far as like race team mechanics, there's a lot of stories about roof racks and problems with roof racks. One time I remember. Uh, the Mavic team, uh, neutral support team at, at the Tour du Pont, um, one of the drivers drove uh, the the wagon with uh, the spare bikes they had on top into a parking garage and uh, damaged a bunch of the bikes and the rack as well. Uh, <laughs> oftentimes, everybody probably knows somebody or heard stories about somebody driving their vehicle with a rack on top with bikes on top into a garage is the most common or you know the garage at home or a parking garage um, and oftentimes the, uh, the 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 vehicle can take the brunt of the hit or the rack um, 
it's kind of weird. It's, it depends on uh, the bike and how well it's secured. Sometimes the bike will pop off. Sometimes the whole rack will pop off and rip the roof line and dent it. Um, that kind of stuff happens. So it's, uh, it's, it's not my favorite thing, you know, and they have those little, those little things you can put on the rear view mirror that say bikes on top, but sometimes those work. Uh, sometimes, sometimes they don't. So kind of, kind of fast forward a little bit, a few years after those days, uh, and, and, and car racks, uh, had to evolve a little bit. Um, and they kind of had to evolve because vehicle roof lines had changed, um, there really aren't that many more of the old style rain gutter, uh, rain gutters on vehicles. There's newer style rain gutters that kind of sit down flush to the roof a little bit more. It's kind of a rubber, a rubber rain gutter, um, instead of a raised uh, piece of metal that you can affix a rack to. Uh, so as far as like installing racks, the naked roofs, uh, which you see quite a bit of today are the most difficult to install. And those are roofs without, um, any raised side rails or fixed points or factory rack uh, factory racks on them, uh, which all of those have made, uh, rack installs a lot easier from a mechanical standpoint, uh, versus the, the naked roof, which is, can be really difficult and measurements have to be perfect and precise. Um, and then, uh, beyond that, you kind of enter into the, uh, the hitch rack world, which for me, it's the best, uh, way to go. If you have a hitch on your vehicle to just put a a platform rack on the back and you can fit anywhere from one to four bikes on those. Um, those are my favorite. They're kind of out of the wind can still go into parking structures, uh, without a problem and they're easy to get on and off. Uh, those are by far my favorite. And another thing about, uh, the, the roof racks is that it's really uh, kind of a pain is the, is the amount of people that have, um, rooftop boxes on top of their vehicles and they seem to just leave them up there not realizing that it, it kind of cuts down on your uh on your mileage and uh they don't um they don't always stay on uh because the way that the the boxes are made nowadays the car factory the cargo boxes is that they're made to be able to take on and off um, pretty easily with uh, a few a few big knobs on the inside once the box is unlocked um so a couple funny things about uh, about rooftop boxes that I have experienced over the years is uh, one of them is that I have probably more than a couple times seen pieces of rooftop boxes in the median uh, while driving, which basically means that at some point that rooftop box came off the vehicle and smashed into the side of the road um, and kind of broke into a bunch of pieces, which is kind of scary if you're the one driving behind it, uh, driving behind that vehicle um and one of the other things about the the rooftop boxes that is kind of kind of silly is that we carried a product for a while i think it was yakima that had a box i don't know if they still do it that could open from both sides so it kind of makes it easy um whatever side's more convenient to open it but of course enter the consumer and the consumer doesn't realize that because the box can open from both sides maybe you shouldn't open both sides at the same time, which they kind of tell you to do, but you tell you not to do, but people do it all the time. That one's kind of frustrating because they like to bring the box in and say, you know, the box doesn't work and say, well, did you try to open it from both sides? Well, yeah, of course it opens on both sides, but you're only supposed to open one side at a time. I didn't read that in the directions. Clearly not. <laughs> 
And one of the one of the other things about um, roof racks, a kind of a not roof racks, but a rooftop box, it obviously has to go on a, a rack on the vehicle. But that's kind of funny is that I have a friend who uh, is from Buffalo. And years ago, when he was much younger, he told he told me a story about he and a bunch of friends uh, driving from Buffalo up to, uh, I believe it was Montreal. And it was in the winter, and it was uh, it's pretty cold out, obviously, upstate New York. Um, and for some reason, one of the vehicles that they drove in uh, broke down and wouldn't start. So they had all these uh, all these guys that needed to get home about an hour drive back home from where they were from where the first car broke down but they couldn't fit everybody in the car so my my friend they came up with the idea to put my friend in the rooftop box and he's um he's a smaller guy you know he's he's about five foot six maybe about 130 pounds and i always thought that this when he told me this story that that he was lying that it was a joke and it was just you know he just made it up but just recently he told me the story again and he actually had photos of himself um, getting in and out of the box and and what they would do is he got all bundled up and they had a bunch of uh, blankets up there in the box and he got in the box and they would drive for about 15 minutes at a time and then they'd pull over and he could get out and they would warm him up and then he would get back in so he made it okay pretty crazy though I can't imagine being inside of a rooftop box driving on the freeway uh, when it was really cold but um, there's that it's kind of it's kind of funny but um, thankfully nothing happened and he made it out of there okay and kind of looking at the way we do uh, roof racks nowadays we actually people actually sleep on top of their roof racks we have rooftop tents that as a bike shop employee are a complete pain to mount Uh, they are just the heaviest thing you need like three or four people to get one up on a roof And then you've got to orient it the right way and set it up. And then you have these people driving around in vehicles with all this weight really up high on their rack. Um, And they just leave them on there because they're so heavy. It's not like a car top box, easy to take on and off. It's not. You need a few people to do it. So they leave them up there. And um, it's just a really silly thing, I think, to sleep on top of your roof rack. Um, But that's just me. It must... uh, must be working for some people, but um, I find it uh, pretty darn silly. So kind of a, a little bit of insight as to how the, the car rack manufacturers uh, fit racks for vehicles nowadays is, is kind of interesting. I had some friends and still have one that does work for um, Yakima, and they had what they called the fit team. And a fit team basically drives around in a large van and goes around to different car dealerships when the new uh, when the new vehicles come out for the year, and they basically have to ask the dealership if they can borrow uh, one of each kind of car at different times and and do some measurements, and they have to do some uh, some metal bending inside the van of brackets and such to get the right dimensions for um, for a a rack that will work for that vehicle. Now, the the most difficult kinds to for them to 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 make are the um, naked roof uh, styles that are going to go into the door the, the door jam and kind of press down on the outside of the vehicle. Um, so those are the ones where they have to do some metal bending and and kind of uh, take take that back to the office and then do uh, some measurements off of that and then they can test it and then and then um, put it out to market. So 
um, you know, for their for their clips, their fit clips or whatever you want to call them nowadays. And there's all different shapes and sizes and they're custom for different vehicles. Um, a lot of vehicles nowadays, like I talked about, have uh, what we call raised rails or fixed points or factory racks. Factory racks are great because they're already on there. You just put on your accessory rack onto, uh, onto the factory rack. Raised rails allow you to use uh, different kinds of systems from uh, the rack companies that are that are really easy to install and um, pretty solid. Fixed points, I've dealt with a few fixed points. Fixed points would be, there might be a little window, a tiny little window on top, like four of them on top of a vehicle where you pop open the hatch and it exposes some areas where you can thread in uh, the rack. Um, those, in my experience, have aren't the best. Um, the fixed points aren't perfect. They're, they can uh, strip out and sometimes the bolts are too short or too long from the rack to fit in there. So those aren't my favorite. Uh, the raised rails and the factory racks are the best. Um, and hitch racks are by far my favorite. But then you've got your trunk mounted racks, which I hate because nobody ever reads the directions of how to mount them. And uh, they are often mounted incorrectly and they're made to come on and off of the vehicle, which can be kind of scary. Um, so it's kind of like, you know, getting on a Ferris wheel that's been put together by a traveling, uh, traveling circus. Uh, <laughs> it's made to be taken on and off and uh, take, uh, taken apart and then reused. So those really aren't my favorite. And I, I told a story a while back in Funny Shop stories about a guy who uh, bought a, a rack, a trunk rack from a shop and wanted, uh, didn't want to pay the money to have it installed by the, by the shop and ended up doing it himself and mounted it too low to the ground and damaged all four wheels on the bikes um, from bottoming out because the rack was too low on the ground when he was driving away and had to come back and have all the wheels fixed. So anyway, that's kind of my rant about car racks. Um, not very glamorous, uh, very utilitarian. Um, lots of companies making racks out there today. They all do a pretty good job. Um, the main thing about racks is reading the directions and watching a YouTube video of somebody installing it. Those two things will, will avoid a lot of problems if you're doing your own rack installs. Even people who work in shops use YouTube sometimes um, after reading the directions and doing technical training from the company. Um, it's kind of a good refresher. So that's my tip for the day on car racks. So hopefully you're still awake after that segment. Um, about car racks, and uh, we're gonna talk a little bit about the Giro, kind of the early years, and Alfredo Binda. So as I talked about uh, in la the last podcast, um, I got this book, it's called The Beautiful Race, uh, The Story of the Giro d'Italia by Colin O'Brien. Um, it's a really uh, cool book, it really gets into the details of how the race started and and uh, where it is today, kind of. Um, I believe the book was uh, published in 2016, so it won't cover the last uh, six or seven years of the, of the race, but um, in chapter two, the early years, uh, Cogne and the company were onto something. Luigi Ghana may have been the Giro's first champion, but it was clear in the summer of 1909 that the race was the real star and that the Gazzetta dello Sport, as its master, was the biggest winner. Publishing every other day when the writers rested, the pink paper had seen a huge swell in readership nationwide um, readers were clearly bitten by the cycling bug and eager to devour all devour all the glory all the gory details of the previous day's racing 
A young footballer recently retired by the name of Emilio Colombo was hired as the paper's full-time editor and charged with following every stage of the race personally in order to provide as much coverage and color as possible, not all of it strictly factual, to feed the public's seemingly insatiable hunger for the race. The Giro's first success emboldened the organizers, so the following spring's edition was duly increased from 8 to 10 stages, covering just under 3,000 kilometers. That made the average stage length slightly shorter than the inaugural edition, but six of the 10 were still over 320 kilometers. The first day's route was a grueling 388 kilometers from Milan to Udine, a small city northeast of Venice, not far from the modern border with Slovenia. Of the 101 starters who began the race on 18th of May, 16 failed to reach the opening day's end, and only 20 would make it back to Milan three weeks later. But though these early Giri were certainly wars of attrition rather than the test of outright speed, it's still impressive that the winner covered the route in a little over 13 hours, averaging almost 30 kilometers per hour. The opening honors of the second edition went to the Milanese Ernesto Azzini, a hulk of a rider who would later that summer become the first Italian winner of a stage at the Tour de France before retiring into anonymity a decade later, dying of tuberculosis at age just 38. Right behind him that day in Udine was another native of Milan, 27-year-old Carlo Galetti, who was about to become the Giro's first dominant force. Italian sports journalists have always loved nicknames, the weirder the better. And while it's not something that's re restricted to cycling, football's Roberto Baggio was known as Il Divino Codino, the divine ponytail. Over the years, it has become a common part of the sport. These days, we have Vincenzo Nibali, the shark of the strait, named for the sea beside his na native Messino, Messina, and Fabio Aru, called the Knight of the Four Moors in reference to the Sardinian flag. The early Giri were all about Galetti, the squirrel of the canals, a moniker presumably inspired by his riding style and by the canals that crisscrossed the neighborhoods in Milan from which he came. Unlike the determined looking Ghana who wore a strong parting in his hair and had an athletic build, or Gerbi who his deep set eyes and tightly cropped hair gave him a sinister look. Galetti's thick set frame and balding Pot gave him the genial look of an agreeable middle age, but then appearances, as everyone knows, can be deceiving. He'd been a printer before becoming a cyclist, and reports of the time described as an exactitude of his writing that reflected the demands of his previous profession. The former typesetter had taken his narrow loss in the 1909 Giro quite badly and spent the intervening 12 months preparing for the next event with dogged determination. The single-mindedness of his character was to serve Galetti well in the coming weeks. A dozen, as dozens of riders retired from the race, Ghana, the defending champion, was out of contention after the first day due to a costly flat tire that left him in 21st place. He focused on stage wins, taking three, and though Galetti was ostensibly also a rival, a pair, the pair teamed up with Eberardo Pavesi to make sure that the foreigners, in particular, Lucien Petit-Breton, did not have an easy time 
on Italian soil. He was a past winner of Milan San Remo and Paris Tours and Paris Brussels, and two-time champion of the Tour de France, and, and one of the sport's first stars. But because of the point system, the Frenchman was already hopelessly behind by the third stage, with 15 to Galetti's five. Taking the hint, Petit Breton promptly packed his bags and set course for his home in Brittany before the start of the fourth stage to Naples. By the end of the day, the second place, Pierino Albini had, had also abandoned, meaning that, bar barring disaster, the Giro was won with five stages still to go. Galetti, Pavesi, and Ghana agree, agreedly, greedily divided up the remaining victories with the squirrel comfortably ending up at the top of the podium back in Milan with a commanding lead of 28 points to 46 and 51 respectively. Galetti's second triumph began in Rome. Cognier had decided to give the Giro a more southern feel for 1911, with the start and finish both held in Rome in celebration of the 50th anniversary of King Victor Emmanuel II's declaration of the Italian state. The route headed north from the capital to Florence, Genoa, and the Ligurian coast, before skirting through Piedmont to Turin and to Lombardy and Milan, from where it headed south to Bologna, Aconia, Abruzzi, and Bari, looping up through Naples on its way back to the Eternal City. Rossignoli gallantly fought the reigning champion in the opening stages and even held the lead for the first five days before Galetti took control. Petit Breton, back over the border from, for more punishment, was also in the mix, becoming the first foreigner to lead the Giro's general class classification when he snuck up on the dueling Italian duo to snatch the GC on stage nine to Solmona, deep in the Alpiens. The French star's luck wouldn't hold, however, and a crash forced him to retire on stage 11, cruelly just two points off Galetti at the top of the leaderboard. For the second year in a row, the Milan native was all conquering. And for the second time in three years, Rossignoli was robbed by wicked fate. He finished the first edition almost 37 minutes ahead of Ghana in terms of total elapsed time. But in 1911, he was, and in 1911, he was 34 minutes clear of Galetti. Never let it be said that bike racing used to be fair. Now, reading that, remember that it's done by a point system. Um, the Giro, the first five years, so it wasn't done on time like we do it uh, in modern days. So it was you, the person with the least amount of points was the winner. So if you got first, you got one point. If you got 50th, you got 50 points. So that's how that worked. And that was why it was possible for someone to not win the Giro, but still accumulated time be 37 minutes ahead of second place, which is kind of sad in a way, but I guess the tactics would be different if you were racing for points and not for time. So I'd like to move forward a little bit here and talk about Alfredo Binda. Uh, and this is in uh, chapter three of this book. Uh, very interesting. I didn't know a lot of the stuff about uh, Alfredo Binda before I read this. So you may find this interesting. You may not. Maybe you know everything. Um, before Copi, before Bartali, there was Binda. Constant Giordan Giordango might have been Italy's first champion the champion of champions, but Binda was cycling's first cannibal, 
decades before the Belgian Eddie Merckx would earn that famous uh, sobriquet by ravaging every race and rider that he came up against. Binda was a rider of unparalleled ability, of such unique talent that he dominated almost every race he entered. In 14 years as a professional, he won the Giro five times, four Italian national titles, four editions of the Giro di Lombardia, three world championships, two Milan San Remo titles, and a plethora of other events, including two stages of the Tour de France in the year that the Gazzetta del Sporto paid him not to ride the Giro. That's really interesting. They paid him not to ride because he was so good. His record of 41 stage wins stood for 70 years until Mario Cipollini went one better in 2003. Binda's rule was not a benign hegemony. I don't know what that means, but his dominance became so overbearing that his detractors called him dittatore, il dittatore, the dictator. Carlo Bellini, a Bellagio, a journalist for the Turin-based magazine, was an admirer, but jokingly dubbed him Il Grand Antipacchio, an epithet that would seriously, loosely translate to the great unlikable. Just, I mean, just imagine a racer being so good that that he is, people don't like to see him at races because they know they're going to be fighting for second place. And in modern times, we can equate that maybe to uh, to Lance Armstrong in his early days of winning uh, winning the tour when he would win by uh, five minutes or more. And once during that time, uh, racers, other uh, racers in the tour were asked, uh, you know, how, what are your uh, what are your future prospects for uh, winning the tour? And oftentimes, the first thing they would say is, uh, first, Lance Armstrong has to retire, and then I'll have a shot." Um, so back to Binda here. Uh, to his rivals, his presence made their, their failure an almost foregone conclusion. To the fans, that made the racing boring, which meant that to organizers, Binda's virtuosity was also an inherent vice. His mere appearance at the start threatened to damage, even destroy the race. And so they paid him to stay home, <laughs> which is really interesting. You might think that a rider like that would be hugely popular, but the Italian public were slow to take to Binda. He was too good for his own good. He started winning as soon as he turned professional, and by the time he was 20, was regularly beating the best riders from both France and Italy. And just one example of how dominant he was in his pomp cycling lore has it that Il Trombier Sitgilio, another of his nicknames, for he was accomplished trumpeter, in his spare time, he was able to shower and take the train home to Varese before the last rider crossed the finish line of the 1926 Giro de Lombardia, a race he won from second place Antonio Negrini by almost 30 minutes. Cycling has always thrived on rivalry. Rivalry. There's little point in a race if you know the outcome at the start. After all, and from the second, he made his first debut in the legendary Legnano team. Until his retirement, almost a decade and a half later, Binda lacked a consistent challenger. His first Giro came in 1925, when the first camp Campionissimo Constantine Giordano was already in decline, and though the Lerero Guerrero occasionally got one over on him, the latter's only Giro title came in 1934, the year 32-year-old Binda retired midway through. 
So it's kind of really interesting to think about that, to think about Binda was so good, but he really lacked a rival to make it interesting. And you can kind of equate that to some modern racing, uh, like cycle, if you follow cycle cross over the last 10 years or so, uh, you've got uh, Matthew Vanderpool and Wout, uh, Van Art kind of uh, elevating each other, uh, really battling it out on a regular basis. Um, you've got, uh, you know, Greg LeMond and Laurent Fignon, uh, any, you know, even Lance had his rivals um, early on. Uh, you know, uh, Ulrich uh, from Germany was kind of his rival, even though Ulrich was only, I believe he did win the tour once, but he was second place many times. But kind of not having uh, another great rider kind of probably hurt Binda a little bit as far as his, uh, his popularity in the sport. So kind of interesting. Um, so on that note, we're going to end our podcast for today. Um, probably talk a little bit more about, uh, Alfredo Binda next time. And, um, going to also cover, uh, I have one topic I'm going to talk about next time for sure that I wasn't able to get to today. And it's a bike shop, uh, kind of bike shop stuff kind of topic. It's about bike assembly and, um, how bike assembly has changed over the years that I have worked for bike shops and going to get into that a little bit more and do a little bit more of the Giro kind of the early days and move, uh, move forward on that a little bit kind of in time. Um, so in the meantime, I, I hope you enjoyed the podcast. I hope the first segment didn't put you asleep too much, uh, about car racks and, uh, we will talk again in a couple weeks. Until then, be safe.